Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Thank you for listening to this Heritage Foundation event. Every day, the Heritage Foundation holds important events with respected and influential leaders and policy experts on today's most important issues. Our events are part of our mission to formulate and promote conservative public policies based on the principles of free enterprise, limited government, individual freedom, traditional American values, and strong national defense. We hope you enjoy the program. Well, uh, welcome everybody. Thank you so much for coming tonight. Uh, my name is Arthur Millick. I'm the Associate Director of the B. Kenneth Simon Center for Principles and Politics here at the Heritage Foundation. Tonight we seek to reopen a question which for the past decades has been buried by polite society. Those that even hover near the question of birthright citizenship, not to mention those trying to argue for a different principle by which to understand it, immediately feel the wrath of the ruling class. Serious constitutional and historical arguments are simply dismissed. The vitriol over the topic implies that elite opinion or the press or international organizations should define, on behalf of American citizens, what constitutes citizenship in America. These authorities would silence reasonable questions regarding consent, sovereignty, and the national interest. And yet, in 2011, 65% of Americans opposed automatic citizenship for children born here to illegal immigrants. This, too, is dismissed. Many today have forgotten the meaning of citizenship, so much so, in fact, that it is given out more and more with ever greater ease. Following this, both foreign nations and foreign individuals have sought to exploit our practices. Despite the frequent hysteria, today we will investigate this question. Our panel will proceed in the following way. Batting first is Michael Anton, who will speak about the founder's view on the issue and on compact theory. Michael Anton is a lecturer and research fellow at Hillsdale College, a senior fellow at the Claremont Institute, and a former national security uh, official in the Trump administration. He's widely published, including in the Wall Street Journal, American Affairs, National Review, and the Washington Post. Second is Professor Ed Erler, who will speak about the constitutional history of birthright citizenship. Professor Erler is Professor of Political Science Emeritus at California State University, San Bernardino, and a senior fellow of the Claremont Institute. He is author of, quote, well, title, The Founders on Citizenship and Immigration, and a contributor to the Heritage Guide to the Constitution. He has published numerous articles in law reviews and professional journals on immigration, judicial power, and citizenship, and has testified before Congress on birthright citizenship. Next will be John Fonte, who will speak about the effects of our recent understanding of birthright citizenship and what other nations have done uh, in the recent past. Uh, Mr. Fonte is Senior Fellow and Director of the Center for American Common Culture at the Hudson Institute. His articles and essays on citizenship, assimilation, and immigration have appeared in numerous publications, including in Commentary, National Review, and the Claremont Review of Books. He has testified before Congress on these themes, and his book, Sovereignty or Submission, won the ISI Book Award in 2012. Uh, finally, I'd like to introduce Ryan Williams, the president of the Claremont Institute and publisher of the Claremont Review of Books, who will serve as the moderator tonight. Thank you very much. Michael?
I'm a little crankier than usual today, having watched some of uh, <laughs> the hearings. Uh, I knew Ka Brett Kavanaugh reasonably well when I was in the White House uh, in the Bush administration. He was the staff secretary, and I was a speechwriter. Um, the staff secretary reads everything the president sees, whatever it is. And so every speech that I wrote or drafted or had any hand in, Kavanaugh would go over with a fine-tooth comb, and you'd have to justify everything you said and every, every assertion you made and every everything. And I had many endless conversations with him on this and other questions, and I've always found him to be uh, you know, just an outstanding White House aide, among other things, but a fine person. And I don't really believe a word of, uh, of what's being alleged about him, and uh, I think he would be a, good, a great Supreme Court justice, and so has me a, a little bit... Crabby. Um, but I'm always crabby, so that's nothing too different, I suppose. Um, and then uh, one other preface is the, the argument that I'm going to lay out or that I have been laying out in print since whenever, I don't know, since the summer of this year, uh, I learned essentially from Ed Erler. Uh, way back in 1994, I first heard it from him and was not convinced by it at the time. I gave him a bunch of really stupid objections to why I thought he was wrong. And uh, he was... I wouldn't say dismissive, but neither was he. Um, it wasn't like you read Education Described Today, where, oh, you have an interesting perspective. Let's th you know, let's think this through, and no matter what you say, you end up getting an A. No, no. So I'll just, uh, a brief analogy. I, I, to amuse myself, late in late in life, I went to culinary school, and um, the, the, my favorite teacher at culinary school is a man named Chef X. That was not. He was not trying to uh, disguise his identity. His name was Xavier, and everyone called him Chef X. <laughs> he was not a mean man, but he was a hard man. And if you put a plate of food in front of him that was incorrectly made, he would taste it. He would tell you why it was wrong, and then he would dump it in the trash and tell you to remake it. He made some people cry. He didn't make me cry. I appreciated him being hard on me because it's the only way to learn. And I was paying for that education, and I wanted to get the most out of it. Um, I appreciate it when my teachers have been hard on me, and I'm assuming that Ed will find something that I say tonight uh, incorrect, inaccurate, incomplete, and I, I want to hear about it in private. Uh, and then I will make uh, I will I will do my best to make sure that I, I get it right. So I'm going to start kind of at the beginning without getting too philosophic, but I think it's important that we go back to first principle. If you boil political philosophy down to its essence, I would say that it posits really only two claims for just rule, for legitimate political rule. The first is wisdom or virtue, which if we recall our Plato and Aristotle, they turn out to be the same thing. Knowledge is virtue. Virtue is knowledge. Second is consent. Now, these appear to be very distant, but they're not, on examination, quite as distant as they appear. And I don't, there's no need to go into that now, although I do have an explanation if anybody wants to hear it later. So the, the, the key things for us to understand are these. Prior to the American Revolution, all claims to just rule were essentially based, to the extent that people made a claim and didn't just say, I have the power and I'm in charge, they were based on wisdom slash virtue. The divine right of kings is basically an updated or debased, depends on how you want to look at it, version of this idea. Now, Locke, John Locke showed, showed that, for instance, in his very little-read first treatise. Everybody reads the second treatise. Nobody reads the first treatise. I, I had to read it in grad school, and I'm glad I did. I, I'm sorry that David Azrad is not here because he wrote his dissertation on the first treatise in which he says the conventional understanding of the first treatise, which I have always hewed to, is all wrong. And you could have asked him about that. He could have explained why I was wrong. Anyway, the American founders say, bollocks, right? Divine right of kings is false. Uh, the claim to virtue and wisdom, as that's the only just title to rule, is false. King George is not sufficiently wise to rule us without our consent, and we therefore withdraw our consent. That means they need to make a new claim to just rule. 
Actually, it's an open question whether they really needed to make a new claim. Lincoln says that they didn't. Lincoln famously called the, Revo uh, the Declaration of Independence a merely revolutionary document, by which he meant sort of a Dear John letter, right? Does anybody remember what that was? It was a famous phrase from World War II where you go off to war and the military, eventually you get some letter written nine months ago and it's your, your girlfriend back home saying, Dear John, sorry, man, it's over. Uh, it was kind of like saying to the King George, Dear John, Dear George, uh, it, 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 it's... Uh, it's over. We're leaving. Now, they could have simply said, we're doing it because we can. We don't have to give you a justification. But they didn't. They made a justification. Why? Well, the Declaration of Independence itself says that uh, they're doing so out of a decent respect for the opinions of mankind. But that only means they needed to tell the reasons for the separation. In other words, the central part of the Declaration, the charges against the king. However, they went further than that. They, they made theoretical claims for what just government is. Why did they do that? Well, Lincoln said to set up a standard maxim for a free society, to set up a permanent bulwark against tyranny, to set up, in a sense, a guarantor of American liberty for all time. Okay, to set up a new basis for government. What is that basis? I would say that basis is social compact theory. Now, social compact theory, a lot of people assert, and people have asserted this recently against some things that I've written, they say it's not real, it's not meant to be real, it's a mental construct or an analogy. But that's not how the originators of social compact theory saw it. They saw it as real. Government exists when people get together, form a compact, and say, we are now a people. We're going to establish a government to protect and advance our own interests, to secure our own rights. Um, this is very clear from John Locke. I have two quite long quotes here, which I think I won't read. But it's, it's very clear from John Locke, and it's clear uh, from statements that the founders our founders made. Now, social compact theory, it's true, is implicit in most countries, right? But that doesn't mean it's abstract or a mental construct. So you don't, you know, wh wh when was the English social compact founded? You can't really say. Does, it, does England have a birthday? It really doesn't, right? Um, still, in a constitutional monarchy that protects people's rights, uh, which England became, I would say, arguably subsequent to the American Revolution, uh, there is government by compact, if implicit. But the compact in the United States is explicit. It's formed on July 4th, 1776. Okay? Now, this quote I will read, this is from James Madison, who's explaining to us what a compact, what a social compact is. And he's, he doesn't mean this as a mental construct or an analogy or a hypothetical. He says this is real. He says, it is proper to keep in mind that all power in just and free governments is derived from compact, that where the parties to the compact are competent to make it, and where the compact creates a government and arms it not only with a moral power, but the physical means of executing it, it is immaterial by what name it is called. Its real character is to be decided by the compact itself, by the nature and extent of the powers it specifies, and the obligations imposed on the parties to it. Here's another relatively short quote. This is from the state constitution of Massachusetts from the founding era. The body politic is formed by a voluntary association of individuals. It is a social compact by which the whole people covenants with each citizen and each citizen with the whole people that all shall be governed by certain laws for the common good. Okay, now I think that more or less disposes of the question of what is the nature of a social, you know, uh, whether or not the United States is based on a social compact. But now we have to ask, what is the nature of that compact? As noted, and this is very clear from the Declaration of Independence, which I won't quote because everyone's heard it a million times before. If you hadn't, you shouldn't, so go home and read it tonight. As noted, the key pillar is consent, Consent is required from all parties. All parties consent at the initial establishment of the compact. Later parties, 
for instance, the children of compact members. They're not there. If you're born after the Declaration of Independence, you, you know, some would say, well, you didn't consent. Ah, well, the founders have an answer for that. Uh, they consent by not emigrating, which means there must be a natural right, an inherent natural right to emigrate. If we're going to say that all government is based on compact, we can't force you to stay here forever. We can't say that your allegiance is perpetual. And uh, the Congress, the U.S. Congress, made this clear from the Expatriation Act of 1868, which in part reads, the right of expatriation is a natural and inherent right of all people, and goes on to say, any declaration, instruction, opinion, order, or decision of any officers of this government, which restricts, impairs, or questions the right of expatriation, is hereby declared inconsistent with the fundamental principles of the government, which means with the fundamental principles of social compact theory. Now, you cannot join the compact without the explicit consent of its existing members. I think that's simply logical. I don't need to quote anybody, although I could. Uh, I don't need uh, to appeal to philosophic authority on this point, although I could and have. I can point you to several things that I've written in recent months. Um, that's just logical. A compact that can be joined by anyone, regardless of the wishes of its current members, is an oxymoron, a self-contradiction, an impossibility. It is not a compact. Another founder, I will quote, this is James Wilson, a lawyer, uh, who wrote a lot about American law at the establishment of our government, says, in the social compact, each individual engages with the whole collectively, and the whole collectively engage with each individual. These engagements are obligatory because they are mutual. The individuals who are not parties to them are not members of the society. That's important, so I kind of shouted it. Maybe I'll read it again. The individuals who are not parties to them are not members of the society. Or this is very blunt and, and pithy. Uh, from a blunt and pithy man, Governor Morris, somewhat obscure these days. I'm not sure people remember who he was. But um, he's the guy who actually was tasked, having sat through the entire Constitutional Convention, with writing it. Um, in other words, the, we, the, the preamble, the stirring language stuff in the Constitution, that was all him. He said, this is, this is a quote from the convention itself before it wrapped in uh, August of 1787. Every society from a great nation down to a club had the right of declaring the conditions on which new members should be admitted. All right. I'm not going to go into the 14th Amendment because Ed's going to do that. Maybe I'll go into it somewhat in Q&A or any of the other laws on this. I'm just trying to establish the fact that the United States is a government based on social compact theory the idea of birthright citizenship or of any involuntary citizenship is inconsistent with social compact theory. So if you want to reject those principles, you have to reject social compact theory, which means you have to reject the bedrock basis, philosophic, legal, political, constitutional bedrock basis for the legitimacy of the United States government, and really of all free government, because you don't have free government if you can be forced to do something against the, citizen, the citizenry's will. You are, then what are we left with? Well, as I said, I think political philosophy really only posits two possibilities. So we're left with the rule of the wise or the divine right of kings or the divine right of bureaucrats or the divine right of democratic senators on the Judiciary Committee. <laughs> uh, given the behavior of the left lately, that's clearly what they'd prefer. After all, they're pretty sure that they are the wise. Um, I'm pretty sure they're not, but whether they are or are not, I don't want to be ruled by the wise. I'd much rather prefer to be ruled by consent under social compact theory. Uh, that's just me, a crank, as I said at the beginning. Um, but there are uh, the mystery to me is why so many ostensibly on the conservative side of this debate go along with the other side. Um, 
But they do, as I found, having restated this case now, I think, four times since July of 2018. And the reaction against me from my ostensible allies on the right has been furious, and against all of us, has been furious. They do think, for whatever reason, this is, this is the hill for conservatism to die on. Um, I see a lot of other hills that we need to be fighting on uh, other than this one. Um, I don't expect to convince them of that, but I would hope that I have made some headway in convincing some of you. All right. I've just learned uh, from reading some progressive liberal constitutionalists that there is no enumerated power in the Constitution to defend the border. I've also learned from a libertarian constitutionalist that there is no enumerated power in the Constitution to limit immigration. I've also learned from other constitutionalists that uh, there's no way to restrict birthright citizenship for the children born to illegal border crossers if they're born within the geographical limits of the United States. So I'm wondering, as I often do, how did we lose our sovereignty as a nation? Because after all, if you can't defend your borders, you can't control immigration, and you can't determine who is and is not a citizen, then you're no longer a sovereign nation. It's that simple, people. Oh, and by the way, I've heard from other progressive liberal constitutionalists that we are in a post-constitutional age. Have you heard that? That is, we don't need the Constitution anymore. That it's been replaced by the administrative state. So why worry about the Constitution? Well, uh, a friend of mine last night, as we were having drinks after dinner, I'm wondering if I just dreamed this or not, but uh, a recent law school graduate told me that the way I taught constitutional law when I was a professor is outre. It's out. No good anymore because she had, in law school, taken uh, her uh, constitutional law class where the professor said, we now need to abolish the Constitution. That's the latest in constitutional law. So indeed, I am out of style. I am out of fashion, but I think everybody knew that, or my friends have known that for a long, long time. <laughs> well, let me get to the point. Everyone believes today that the 14th Amendment adopted the English common law notion of birthright citizenship. It is my contention that the 14th Amendment, in fact, did not adopt the English common law notion of birthright citizenship, use solely. That is to say, citizenship by the place of birth. It did not. 
and that the case of United States versus Wong Kim Ark in 1898, in which the Supreme Court decided that the 14th Amendment did, in fact, adopt the British common law, was mistaken, and it is easily proven that it was, in fact, mistaken. Now, what do we know about the English common law when it comes to birthright, I almost said citizenship, but if you look at Blackstone, who is our source on the matter, Blackstone never uses the word citizen in his four-volume commentaries on the common law of England, all right? Four big volumes. Luckily for you, I'm not asking you to read that big work. I've done the work for you. But the word citizen never occurs. Neither does it occur in Sir Edward Cook, who is the author of uh, Calvin's case, the 1608 case, in which British uh, law concerning British subjectship was first uh, codified. All right? The word citizen doesn't occur in Calvin's case, nor does it occur in Blackstone. It is always British subjectship, birthright subjectship. There are no citizens under the British common law. It is always subjectship. And what Blackstone says is this, that in exchange for birth within the protection of the king, you owe perpetual allegiance to the king. That's an exchange. In gratitude for protection, born within the protection of the king, you owe perpetual allegiance to the king. That's what British subjectship is. Perpetual allegiance. Is that what we adopted as the basis for our citizenship in America? I don't think so. Do I have any proof? Yes, I do. I'm glad you asked. The Declaration of Independence, for example, which is the quintessential example of social compact reasoning about the legitimacy or the origins of government, says we dissolve, we the American people, the American people are described in the Declaration in two ways, in their corporate or political capacity as the one people of America, and they're also described in their moral capacity as the good people of America. They are the good people because they constitute themselves uh, with respect to an agreement about the principles that unite them, the principles of the Declaration of Independence described as the laws of nature and nature's God. So the one people and the good people dissolve their allegiance to the British crown. Now, under the English common law, this is impossible because you owe, born within the protection of the king, you owe perpetual allegiance. And that allegiance cannot be put off or avoided 
without the permission of the king. Now, I don't believe that the king gave us permission to separate from Great Britain. Am I right about that? I think so. So we said, we dissolve our allegiance. Now, the allegiance under the British common law was perpetual. So we dissolved our allegiance. We broke off. We rejected the common law. Now, is it reasonable to believe that having rejected the common law of perpetual allegiance, we adopted that as our basis for citizenship? Doesn't make any sense. We Now, Blackstone says that the notion of perpetual allegiance is a relic, a holdover from the feudal relation of master and servant. He says that. We have to acknowledge, Blackstone says, that this is the relation of master and servant, which became the basis for subjectship, the relationship between king and subjects. And that was perpetual allegiance. Now, we rejected that relic of feudalism in the Declaration of Independence. Is it reasonable to believe that we adopted that as the basis for citizenship in this newly formed republic, which was based upon the consent of the governed? I don't think so. It doesn't make any sense. We believe that citizenship is now based upon consent and that legitimate government is the just powers of government, legitimate government proceeds from the consent of the government. Consent now is the basis of citizenship, not um, the accident of birth. You solely, you know, you're born here, therefore you owe perpetual allegiance. In the first uh, number of the Federalist Papers, Alexander uh, Hamilton said, This is the time in which a people is going to decide whether governments uh, uh, rest upon accident and force or whether we can choose government based upon, uh, uh, I mean, accident and force or whether we can choose government based upon deliberation and choice. Now, the accident of birth, which is the British system, the British common law system, is going to be... uh, replaced by the consent of the governed, which is on the side of deliberation and choice. Deliberation and choice implies natural right. All right? Let me fast forward now to uh, the... um, And by the way, Madison also said this. He said, there is in America, in the common law, nothing nothing survives in the common law that's contrary to the principles of the revolution meaning the principles of the Declaration of Independence. And it's clear that the Declaration rejected birthright subjectship in the way in which we dissolved our allegiance to the British crown. So that didn't survive the principles of the Revolution. That's very clear. And those passages that Mr. Anton read to you from Madison's uh, writings on uh, compact uh, um, uh, second that uh, that notion. Now let me talk to you a little bit about the 14th Amendment. Did it adopt the British common law of birthright subjectship? 
Of course it did not. Now, the citizenship clause of the 14th Amendment was uh, introduced very, very late in the debate about the 14th Amendment, almost at the last moment. The Privileges and Immunities Clause was already in the 14th Amendment, which says that uh, the privileges and immunities of United States citizens cannot be denied. And so uh, Benjamin Wade, a senator from Illinois, uh, raised an objection from the floor of the Senate and said, well, we're protecting the privileges and immunities of United States citizens. We ought to have a definition of who are United States citizens. It only makes sense. And he suggested that we ought to say United States citizens are all persons born or naturalized in the United States. And that question was taken up by the Joint Committee on Reconstruction. And they came back a couple weeks later and said, we suggest that the definition of United States citizenship should be all persons born or naturalized and subject to the jurisdiction thereof are citizens of the United States and of the states wherein they reside. So the Committee on Reconstruction added and subject to the jurisdiction. So two requirements now, born or naturalized in the United States, very important, but they also have to be subject to the jurisdiction of the United States. Two requirements. That means not all persons born in the United States are subject to the jurisdiction of the United States. That's interesting. So what does it mean to be subject to the jurisdiction of the United States? Again, I'm glad you asked because I have the answer. A lot of debate about this. Today, our progressive liberal friends, including many, many people who should know better, say that everyone who is born within the geographical limits of the United States are subject to the automatically subject to the jurisdiction of the United States because they are subject to the laws and to the courts of the United States. That's wrong. Why is it wrong? Because you've simply rendered the jurisdiction clause superfluous without force or effect, right? If everybody who was born here is automatically subject to the jurisdiction, then you've rendered the jurisdiction clause meaningless. If that's what the framers of the 14th Amendment had meant, they would left, have left out the jurisdiction clause. Everybody get that point? Of course. And what is it that a good constitutional scholar knows if you're going to be an original intent jurisprude? You know that every part of the Constitution has to have meaning. You cannot interpret the Constitution in a way that leaves some Constitution without force or effect. Some part of the Constitution without force or effect. So we have to find some meaning to the jurisdiction clause. Well, what did the framers say? They said... Subject to the jurisdiction means owing allegiance to the United States. Subject to the complete jurisdiction of the United States, meaning owing allegiance to no other country. Owing complete allegiance to the United States. Not subject to any foreign nation. That's what they said. And they said it over and over and over again. 
Now, it's a fair question. If they meant, by subject to the jurisdiction, if they meant not owing allegiance, why didn't they put in allegiance instead of jurisdiction? Yeah, that's a fair question. Many people have asked that, and I have the answer. This, because it's the answer that the framers of the 14th Amendment gave. Now, Senator Trumbull, who was a senator from Illinois, the chairman of the powerful Judiciary Committee at the time, in 1866, he was also the author of the Civil Rights Act of 1866, which had passed only five weeks prior uh, to this debate uh, about the 14th Amendment about the uh, Citizenship Clause in the 14th Amendment. The Civil Rights Act had been passed over the veto of President Johnson, and that means that it was passed uh, by a two-thirds majority in both houses of the Congress. And these were the same people that passed the 14th Amendment uh, in both houses of the Congress. Now, what Senator Trumbull had said was that we were going to put into the language of the Civil Rights Act allegiance that all persons born or naturalized and subject and owing allegiance to the United States were citizens. And then we remembered that the word allegiance was a term of art under the common law, under the British common law. It was a term of art. And that there were certain people under the British common law who owned, who owed temporary allegiance to the king. Somebody comes into the country, maybe they come in for business, and they're under the protection of the king, but they don't owe perpetual allegiance because they were not born under the protection uh, of the king. So they come in, and they owe allegiance to the king, but it's only temporary. And they leave the country, and they give up their temporary allegiance. And so what Trumbull said was, if we put in allegiance into the bill, we would be making those people citizens, those who owed only temporary allegiance to the country. We would be making them citizens, and we don't want to do that. We don't want to imply that Anything in our Constitution has anything to do with the British common law. That's what he said. And so they put in jurisdiction instead of allegiance, implying that jurisdiction was a proper Republican substitute for uh, the monarchical term of allegiance. All right? And so that's how that came about. And then uh, 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 Mr. Anton mentioned uh, something important, and that was the Expatriation Act, uh, which was debated in 1868 by virtually the same people who debated the 14th Amendment. The Expatriation Act allows citizens to give up their citizenship, to renounce their citizenship, as long as it's not 
to avoid some obligation that they've already incurred or to to, uh, avoid a penalty for a crime or something of that character. And during the debate over the Expatriation Act, which was uh, debated mostly or mainly by the same people who debated the 14th Amendment, Senator uh, Jacob Howard, who was the author of the Citizenship Clause of the 14th Amendment, was the leading proponent of the Expatriation Act. And uh, he said this was demanded by the principles of the Declaration of Independence. It was part of those rights that were in life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, expatriation. If you consent to be governed, then, of course, you you have the right as an individual to take back your consent. If you believe that government is not uh, governing in a way that promotes your right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That's uh, a necessary conclusion from the idea of compact basis of government. Is not a, as long as you're not taking back your consent to avoid an obligation uh, that you've already incurred. Now, the common uh, and at this point, uh, the debaters were denouncing Blackstone. Blackstone, they said, uh, who was the commentator on the British law a birthright subjectship, should be expelled from this continent. That's what one of the debaters said. He should be expelled because he was the author of an indefensible doctrine of indefeasible uh, how did it go? Indefeasible subjectship. Indefensible, indefeasible subjectship. And that feudal doctrine should be expelled from America immediately. It's time for it to go. Now, we're expected to believe today by many people that the 14th Amendment adopted the English uh, law, common law, of birthright citizenship. It doesn't make any sense. And I think uh, we have plenty of evidence that that was not the case. Let me just quickly... I'm out of time? I'm always out of time. (laughs) Let me explain Wong Kim Ark, 1898, which is the case that says this settles the issue. The common law is the basis of our citizenship. Six to two decision, Justice Gray writing the majority decision. He he makes one complete non-sequitur argument in this way. The framers of the Constitution knew the common law they had studied Blackstone. That's true. Crap. That is all entirely true. They knew their Blackstone. They studied the common law. And what Gray says is because they had studied Blackstone and studied the common law, we must read the Constitution in the light of the common law. That's the non sequitur I'm talking about. Madison had said, we do not accept the common law. The principles of the Declaration of Independence, which the Constitution was intended to set in motion, that's what we adhere to. That's a a non sequitur. And by the way, the the, uh, people 
in the uh, in the case were legal residents of the United States who by treaty and by law could not become citizens of the United States. Uh, and uh, uh, they had a child here. Uh, and the question was uh, whether he was a citizen of the United States. But they were legal residents. And to date, we have not had a case strictly on, sport, uh, on point uh, where the Supreme Court has said that the children of illegal immigrants are citizens uh, by birth. Uh, but uh, uh, Juan Kim Zark's parents were legal residents. Now, if I'm right that the framers of the 14th Amendment said allegiance, now his parents said that they still owed allegiance to the emperor of China. We still retain our allegiance to the emperor of China, but they were not trying to become American citizens because by law and by treaty they could not be. Uh, Now, if I'm right about that, uh, when uh, their uh, son was born in the United States, he, of course, could form no allegiance as a, an infant. His allegiance would follow that of his parents. And uh, in the case, uh, Justice Gray said that and quoted the Expatriation Act, not knowing that the Expatriation Act, of course, was against the common law. You cannot expatriate yourself under the uh, common law because under the common law, your allegiance is perpetual. He said under the Expatriation Act, uh, uh, um, uh, Mr. Kim Ark could leave the country and go back to China if he wanted to or to any other country that he wanted to, uh, which was against the common law. Uh, now, Chief Justice Fuller had a dissent, and he said, look, The Declaration of Independence repealed the common law, and Madison was right. Whatever is in the Declaration, uh, uh, whatever in the common law is against the principles of the Declaration was repealed by the Declaration. And that was a principle of constitutional jurisprudence that stood for a long, long time, uh, but which, of course, has been rejected many years ago. So I'll stop now. So I should stop now. So let's move from uh, theory to practice. We've heard that birthright citizenship is problematic in theory. In principle, it's problematic. Uh, What is it in practice? What are the the consequences in the real world? Every year, roughly 300,000 children are born to illegal immigrants in the United States. The executive branch of the United States government automatically recognizes these children as United States citizens uh, from birth. The same is true for children born to tourists. What's the impact of this? Well, uh, one impact is is more welfare costs and chain migration. There's an estimated uh, 4.5 to 5 million U.S.-born children of illegal immigrant parents born in the United States. In educational terms, public schools... Uh, this would cost roughly uh, between 50 and $60 billion a year. Now, we're constantly told uh, by the Cato Institute, for example, that uh, li- uh, illegal immigrants, can- well, they can't receive uh, welfare. You'll hear this from Alex Narosta at, at, at Cato. Um, but they don't tell you, or Alex or the others don't say, 
that illegal immigrants can obtain welfare on behalf of their U.S.-born children, uh, such as uh, food stamps. And food stamps are fungible, obviously. They don't just go to the, uh, the, the U.S.-born children. The whole family can use food stamps. Uh, and the same thing was uh, with Medicaid. Um, and many, and uh, these welfare costs associated with illegal immigration um, have, are due um, in, in large part to uh, current birthright citizenship policies. Uh, Robert Rector of the Heritage Foundation here puts the net cost of immigration. So net cost, it includes the negative and the positive. Obviously it increases GDP. If you have more people, GDP goes up. So people always like to point this out. Um, so there are some gains, but if you, if you put it together, uh, Rector says there's a net loss in actually in all immigration, legal and illegal, of, of 50 billion a year. Now nationwide, 62 percent of illegal immigrant-headed households receive some type of welfare, uh, and these typically are, are um, food stamps, Medicaid. 48 uh, percent receive um, a free school lunch. Um, also, of course, states and localities offer additional welfare benefits. Ten years ago, uh, the Los Angeles County supervisor, supervisor estimated that illegal immigration and birthright citizenship cost the taxpayers in Los Angeles County uh, over a billion dollars a year, not including educational costs. This is just the food stamps, the Medicaid, the public housing, and so on. Uh, nationally, the majority of illegal immigrants and their U.S.-born children uh, live in near poverty. So there is no doubt that the policy of birthright citizenship means increasing the percentage of U.S. citizens living in poverty. That's just a fact. Well, let's look at chain migration. Children born to illegal immigrants, uh, say he or she when he turns 21, uh, he can bring in relatives, including adult brothers and sisters, who in turn can bring in uh, more relatives. Uh, over one million immigrants a year are granted green cards, which is, is a, means you can then get a, become a citizen after five years. Um, and about 66% um, of all immigration is sponsored by, uh, by relatives. So it's not merit, it's 66% are, is relatives bringing in relatives. And birthright citizenship uh, contributes greatly to this process. Now, many on the center-right, including the United States Chamber of Commerce, uh, regularly call for increasing the number of guest workers in the American workforce. Well, we need more, we need guest workers. There's just not enough work, and they don't think about raising wages. It's just, let's get some more cheap labor in. What's almost never discussed is the impact of the citizen children, this does happen, of guest workers who are born here in the United States. So if a guest worker, say, doesn't, has a work visa, he doesn't depart, work visa expires, uh, he becomes technically an illegal alien and is subject to deportation. But what if he has a child? In that case, the immigration authorities may not deport him, and he can make a case that um, I have to stay indefinitely because otherwise, uh, on, on this very important principle we've heard a lot about lately of keeping families together. Well, you're dividing the family if you're going to deport this guest worker after he's had this child, you're going to uh, break up a family. Um, then there is the phenomenon of birth tourism, uh, which actually is criticized, has been criticized in the mainstream media. Birth tourism, of course, 
means that a uh, pregnant foreign woman, particularly from China, from Korea, Turkey, Mexico, Central America, Russia, and Nigeria, <clears throat> come to the United States for the explicit purpose of having their child obtain U.S. citizenship. Uh, as I say, this has even been attacked in the mainstream media. For example, the, uh, NBC had a report, and they estimate, estimated there were 40,000 children every year born to women who were in the United States on a travel visa. So 40,000 a year in 10 years, that's 400,000, near half a million. You know, that adds up after a while. Uh, the Washington Post, article in the Washington Post actually reported, we told the story of this Chinese-based company that promotes birth tourism. And our clients include Chinese doctors, lawyers, business leaders, government officials, and uh, even well-known media personalities. Now, this is a Chinese-owned business in California. They provide for a three-month stay at the center, two months before the birth, one month after the birth. The uh, clients get a room with cable TV, wireless Internet connection, three meals a day. The doctors and staff all speak Chinese. They even get excursions and various outings and, and so on. Now, this company makes their, their perspective pitch to clients in, in China is that well, if, if you, you're, uh, we get you, you, you get you get a child born in the United States, uh, they can become then a technically United States citizen. So this Chinese child then has free access to public education, primary to high school, uh, and education is actually um, cheaper in the United States than it is in the very top Chinese uh, private schools. So it's a little cheaper. You can get in, and so on. This is the pitch they make, and apparently uh, it's been successful. The liberal Washington Post journalist, uh, Keith Richburg, uh, um, he declared that birth tourism has developed without any debate in Congress or without the consent of the public. So he quotes a Korean woman who's saying that, well, it's easy. You register the birth, it's automatic, your baby gets an American passport. Now, birth tourism can be a lucrative business for immigrants who facilitate this process. <clears throat> Turkish doctors, hotel owners, and immigrant families in the United States have assembled what amounts to a birth tourism assembly line, uh, reportedly arranging the birth of over 12,000 Turkish children in the United States, now American citizens. Turkish-owned Marmara Hotel Group offers a birth tourism package. Also, the Tucson Medical Center in Tucson, Arizona, offers a birth package to expectant mothers and actively recruits in Mexico. These are for more affluent people. Now, um, the United States State Department at this point does nothing to stop this. A U.S. Embassy spokesman in Beijing said, quote, well, you, we, you don't deny a visa to someone just because you know they're coming to the United States to have children. Apparently, the United States State Department is not permitted to deny a woman a temporary visa, a temporary visitor visa, simply because she's pregnant. The practice of granting automatic birthright citizenship allows a temporary foreign visitor uh, to impact our immigration and citizenship policy. And these are not, not necessarily policies welcomed by the majority of the American people. So birth tourism illustrates how the executive branch's permissive birthright citizenship policies, just adopting this uh, birthright citizenship, this transfers control over the nation's immigration policy and citizenship policy uh, from American citizens to foreigners. Well, let's look at some international comparisons. Many of our liberal friends uh, always tell us, well, let's look at what other developed countries are doing. 
on universal health care, on gun control, on taxes, on international law, on the death penalty and the like. We should look at uh, like-minded countries, they tell us, and learn from them. Okay, well, let's, let's do that on citizenship naturalization. The United States is one of the few countries in the world uh, that recognize automatic citizenship for the children born to illegal and temporary immigrants. Developed countries generally do not grant automatic birthright citizenship uh, to the children. In fact, only the United States and Canada, only the United States and Canada, are the only uh, developed countries uh, which grant automatic birthright citizenship to the children of illegal immigrants and uh, people uh, who are visiting temporarily. In recent years, this international trend among the world's democracies has actually been to end uh, birthright citizenship. Countries have changed. They had birthright citizenship, and they changed their position. Um, and this has happened, in, particularly in many of our con- Anglo-sphere countries. Um, for example, the United Kingdom, Great Britain, ended birthrights to the practice of birthright citizenship in 1983. Australia, 1986. Uh, India, 1987. Uh, Malta, 1989. Ireland, 2004. New Zealand, 2006. They all changed their opinion. Why? Basically two reasons. There was too much illegal immigration, and people were <coughs> legal immigrant children were getting, becoming, getting citizenship, and there was some birth tourism. Um, there was a referendum in Ireland. There was a lot of birth tourism in Ireland. There was a referendum, uh, and uh, the people of Ireland voted uh, to end birthright citizenship. It had to be an Irish citizen. So if the United States, and it would change this policy, they were to stop granting automatic uh, birthright citizenship to children of illegal immigrants, we would be following in the international trend, specifically the trend among Anglosphere democracies. Now, Australia is sort of interesting. Australia changed its policy uh, that you have to have one of your parents has to be an Australian citizen. However, they do have a clause that um, is possible for an illegal immigrant uh, the child of an illegal, two illegal immigrant parents to get citizenship at the age of 10. If the child has lived continuously in Australia for 10 years, they can then apply, there's a petition, and they can, they say, lived here for 10 years, um, you can apply for citizenship, and this is then goes to the Minister of Education, and they actually do a fact finding to see if the person was in living in, in Australia or not. And then if the minister says no, uh, they can appeal to the, the Australian High Court, and they also do a fact-finding. So in some cases, um, the petition is denied. In some cases, it's accepted. So that's what they do in Australia. Um, so um, these poly- this is a crucial issue for democratic people who should become a citizen. <coughs> that's why we brought it up here tonight. Now, Congress could act, <coughs> clarify the 14th Amendment, or the administration could act. Uh, and we can talk about this perhaps in the uh, a little bit in the uh, in the Q and A. Um, but uh, in any case, if this is done, then um, Americans would at least there'd be some some type of democratic process involved, and they'd have some some voice on this. And if Americans did end the practice granting automatic citizenship to anyone born on U.S. soil, uh, we would be simply following the global trend already embraced by uh, most American democracies. I want to add one addendum. I want to end there, but this is an interesting uh, story. One of the researchers for the Center for Immigration Studies, which has done terrific work on this, I think one of our representatives is there, I see. Um, they, um, well, the researcher who did the most work on um, 
uh, the department on, on birthright citizenship, who now fortunately is working in the administration, um, uh, actually called the Virginia Department of Health to see if they're what are they doing about the children of foreign diplomats? Because that's everybody agreed with that, even all the people that have been uh, badgering uh, Professor Anton and all these uh, all these other uh, so-called conservatives and all these other people said, well. Well, yeah, we agree the children of foreign diplomats, uh, no question, they should not become citizens. So this researcher called it and said, well, what are you doing there in Virginia? Because a lot of uh, diplomats live in Virginia and, of course, D.C. and Maryland. So what are you doing to uh, ensure that these children of the diplomats are not citizens? Well, what do you think they're doing? They're doing nothing. <laughs> so the, uh, the whole uh, subject of the jurisdiction, even even that little thing of uh, foreign diplomats, that's a totally meaningless in practice in today's world. Thanks, John. <laughs> well, thank you, uh, Mike. Thanks, Ed, and thanks, John. Uh, I had a wonderful summing up and a wonderfully uh, intelligent opening question, but considering we ran a little long, uh, let's give some time for questions. So, Mike, please wait for the microphone down in front. Hi, I was wondering if you could speak to uh, your how your view of birthright right citizenship um, affects uh, dual citizenship, because if uh, born or naturalized um, and you have to be subject to the jurisdiction, if that means that you owe sole allegiance to the U.S., then it seems like someone naturalized could not retain citizenship in their home nation. Um, and if they can, then why cannot those born also have um, citizenship in their home nation as well? Well, I think uh, according to the framers of the 14th Amendment, owing allegiance to no other country, there's no such thing as dual citizenship. Also under the British common law, there is no dual citizenship. Uh, so uh, either way, dual, dual citizenship is impossible. It's not possible with... Uh, the idea of sovereignty. If you're going to be a sovereign nation, you can't owe allegiance to two different... I mean, today we have the oath of allegiance. You you swear uh, exclusive allegiance to the United States, but we allow dual citizenship. If you, can, you can't swear allegiance to a... Um, to a... Uh, theocratic, uh, owe allegiance to a theocratic uh, tyranny and to the United States at the same time, but we we allow it for some strange reason. Um, well, for most of American history, um, as Professor Erner said, uh, <clears throat> we didn't allow dual citizenship. Uh, there was, this was changed by a Supreme Court decision. It was the Warren Court, 1967, yeah. Afrohim v. Russ. That was Dean Russ, Secretary of State. Yeah. Uh, before that, if you voted in a foreign election and served in an army, a foreign army, uh, you ought, it, was an, it was an expatriating act. You automatically lost your citizenship. Uh, in 1967, the ACLU found this sympathetic um, <coughs> client who had voted in an Israeli election. Um, um, and he, um, they, they ruled five, it was a Warren Court decision, five to four, uh, that uh, Congress could not take your citizenship away yourself, from you. Uh, you, had to, uh, you had to do it yourself. You had to renounce your citizenship. Before that, uh, Congress did it and it was automatic if you had voted in a foreign election. So that started the process. Then in the 1990s, uh, when Jim Baker was Secretary of State, um, he, ba he bas basically sort of threw in the towel and said, okay, this, this sort of exists and we'll stop it. Before that, the State Department had been actually very strict and, and uh, opposed dual citizens. So that's what happened in 1990. We had, 
I was actually working in the early um, aughts, like 06, 07, with some members of Congress to see if we could do something about dual citizenship, dual, if someone's actually voting in a foreign country. And there was some interest, and then one of the Senate members checked in the caucus, and they looked, they talked around, and they found, well, some of our members uh, are a little touchy with this uh, because one was the Senator Martinez of Florida because the Cuban interest, well, they wanted to keep this because I guess they wanted to take over Cuba someday when Castro falls. And there are a lot of uh, Americans living in Israel who probably vote for Likud and they vote for Republicans here. So uh, the practice Trump's <laughs> principle in this case, I guess, so they weren't interested in, in changing it. So that sort of, yeah. that looks like a very tough sell. But obviously in principle, you're totally right. Yeah. Hi, uh, my name is Devin Watkins. Um, I have publicly defended Anton against some of the criticism he's received, um, but I got to say I disagree with uh, rejecting some of the common law in whole, uh, English common law that is. Um, I think that there was uh, birthright citizenship at the founding. We know that because the president must be a natural born citizen, and therefore there was at least some people that must have been uh, had birthright citizenship under that clause, and. It was a different notion of birthright citizenship. It had nothing to do with the British common law. It, 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 and it also had a certain period of time. You, you, yeah. a citizen for, what was it, 20, 20 years or a resident at the time of the Declaration of Independence. Right. It was about, the, in other words, it was about eligibility for certain offices as constitutionally defined. It was not a grant or non-grant of citizenship. And by the way, when you say, you know, you think it's unwise or not required to reject the whole of the common law, well, the quote that Ed read you from Madison does not reject the whole of the common law. Madison says we reject those parts of the common law that are contrary to the principles of the revolution. That's all. Not all of the common law. And much of the common law does inform U.S. statute law. The U.S. is a statute system, not a common law tradition. Um, in the writing of the statute law, that was definitely informed by the common law. Sometimes judges look at the common law to try to understand better how to interpret statute law. But if you read you know, I'm no expert on the common law, but I've read a lot of English novels that have uh, lots going on in the law. If you read about what the English law system is like, you know, in Trollope or Dickens trying to figure out how to apply when there are no statutes, that's the sort of tangled mess yeah. that the founders in basing the U.S. system on statute law were trying to avoid. So um, uh, just to uh, continue with my question, if I might. Um, I, I, I think instead, if we uh, embrace the common law, they did make distinctions. It made, in many ways, the same distinction you're making about allegiance or not, and that a person had to kind of agree to that allegiance in exchange. The king granted them protection. And other than, as you said, um, the, the ability to give up citizenship, I agree with you when they switched from subjectship to citizenship. Clearly now citizens must be able to give that up if they wish. That definitely changed the common law. But beyond that, I think there was the recognition that it is in, under the English common law, that it was allegiance that was the most important thing. They did recognize temporary allegiance, but it was under English common law, only people that had been recognized by the government as entering the comfort and country uh, with the yeah. consent of the king and being extended the protection. Yeah. Those were the only people that were then granted subject shipped if, if they had children. Yes, but, but, the, but the thing is, 
you know, you owed perpetual allegiance to the king, you, and you could never get rid of that perpetual allegiance. And there were no citizens uh, in that feudal uh, system. Uh, uh, whereas in America, I mean, James Wilson, who was mentioned earlier, had an interesting, he, he was a, a signer of the Declaration, signer of the Constitution, later a member of the Supreme Court. And he said, in America, there are citizens, but no subjects. And so the Declaration transforms subjects into citizens because their active consent was required uh, for the operation of government. We have uh, elections, which are, means the continuing consent of the people uh, for the operation of government and so on, so that people who uh, assert their rights and freely accept obligations, that's what a Republican government is. That's a lot different from a common law system of government. The idea of perpetual allegiance, my goodness gracious. Let's not uh, the, the, the understanding of, of uh, a common law understanding of citizenship or um, use solely, I just, I just don't see how you can square that with social compact theory. And in fact, implicitly, the, the common law evolves without being rewritten. It evolves. The British have de facto adopted the social compact idea of citizenship by implicitly rejecting the common law understanding. They still have a monarch. They still have a queen. But if they've rejected birthright citizenship, which they have by statute through through uh, parliament, and they've accepted the right of emigration with an E, which they have, both of which are antithetical to the common law. It means they've yeah. the old common law tradition. It means they've changed the common law to bring themselves into but, re- modern small R Republican but practice. Idea, you remember Marbury versus Madison. I mean, it seems trite, but uh, Marshall kept saying, you know, here we have a written constitution, and what that means is. Uh, the framers decided to write it down so that we would never forget it. We don't have to go and rummage around a bunch of old, musty law books looking for things the way you have to do in the common law. Was it for George number two, this, that, and the other thing? And uh, here it is written down so that we don't forget it. And it's a written constitution. That means it's not a common law constitution. That's why Justice Gray, in writing in the... And the 1898 case was wrong when he says we have to interpret the Constitution in light of the common law. That was simply the wrong principle of constitutional interpretation. And when he said that he recognized that the common law talked about subjects and not citizens. And you know what he said about that? For our purposes, subjects and citizens are convertible terms. So that when you see subjects in the common law, just think of citizens. Well, my goodness gracious, they are not convertible terms any more than monarchy and republics are convertible terms. Yeah, I mean, you might talk about subjects and citizens of being convertible terms if you want to flatter monarchs, but you know you don't talk that way in republics. The the founders of America knew that there was a difference between a republican form of government and monarchy, and the difference in regime forms was essential. That's what the Federalist Papers is all about. That's what the founders were all about. We're very, very uh, uh, sensitive to regime forms, separation of powers, rule of law, and we have to be very careful about all of those things. And the idea that we just say, well, subjects and citizens, those are convertible terms. Oh, my goodness. It doesn't get any worse than that.
Uh, this will be our last question, but we have time at the reception to interrogate all of our panelists. Okay, I, I'm Mark Venezia from the Immigration Reform Law Institute. In spite of its name, we're on your side. Thank God you're not from the Comprehensive Immigration name Reform is a, <laughs> Name is a little bit misleading, I guess. Um, so what we're really concerned about here is uh, the issue of uh, illegal immigrants and of tourists. We're not really concerned that much about other temporary visas. We're not concerned about people with green cards. And, and just uh, politically, the two most interesting areas are the tourists and the illegal immigrants. Right? Yeah. So, can we also say that if you can get what you want without overturning Wong, Wong Kim Ark, that's better than going back, arguing about the Senate debate, the common law, as insightful as your comments are. And I'm going to tell you something you already know, actually, because I've seen it uh, buried in your writings, uh, Professor Erler. Um, and and I'm, I just want to read uh, one quote. It'll be very brief. Uh, and it gives us, when you can combine this quote with Justice Gray's other opinions in Elg and in Fong, yes, yes, yes. if you combine it, you get everything you want. Chinese persons born out of the United States, remaining subjects of the out of the United States means in the United States, okay? Remaining subjects of the Emperor of China and not having become citizens of the United States are entitled to the protection of and owe allegiance to the United States so long as they are permitted by the United States to reside here and are subject to the jurisdiction thereof in the same sense as all other aliens residing in the United States. So what do we have? Well, what, what happens if they are not permitted by the United States to reside here? Um, like, first, there's all these references to residing in the United States. Do tourists reside in the United States? I think it's a bit of a stretch. But the other thing is, if you are not permitted to be in the United States, you certainly have here the basis, if you if we put it together with Elg and Fong, that they are not under the complete, they're, you see, they're not under the complete protection because they can grab, be grabbed at a, a, a moment's notice. We find that in Fong, Justice Gray's decision. If they're not under, so they're not under complete protection. You need complete protection and complete allegiance to have complete jurisdiction. So there you have it. If you're not permitted, there's not complete jurisdiction of the parents and thus the children do not have birthright citizenship. I'm not versed enough, I would say, on, you're sort of asking a tactical question. How do you approach the court? How are you more likely to win rather than taking on a stare decisis that you might get run into trouble with? It sounds to me like that's what you're saying. It's a sort of tactical way to get to the same end. It seems to me, though, that if you leave, I mean, if, as long as Wong Kim Ark is considered a binding precedent, then the common law basis of citizenship is a binding precedent, and it undermines everything else you're trying to do. So uh, that is, is a, is, seems to me to be well, a, a, a problem. Well, I think 
all you all you need is uh, something from Congress saying, and this has happened before because everybody agrees. First question that was asked was, "Does the Fourteenth Amendment make citizens of Indians?" And everybody said no, uh, because uh, they uh, owe allegiance to their tribes and not to the United States, and that was agreed to. But Congress, over the years, beginning almost immediately after the Fourteenth Amendment, uh, invited certain tribes to become citizens of the United States. So they passed laws. If members of these tribes wanted to become citizens, they could consent to become citizens. Yeah, they didn't yeah. have to, but they could consent. So they brought them within the jurisdiction of the United States by law. Section 5 of the 14th Amendment gives Congress the power to enforce the provisions of the 14th Amendment. So they brought them by, by legislation within the jurisdiction of the United States, and, and they did it on a tribe-by-tribe -tribe basis until yeah. 1923. They made the offer to all Native persons. Now, what I think can happen, and I'm sure it would be legal, is that they could use their Section 5 powers to exclude the children born to illegal border crossers. You don't need to do that. Look, well, the, the statute, the statute is just a repetition of the 14th Amendment. Okay? Then the statute has these other clauses for Indians, for Puerto Ricans, and so on in the territories. But for what we normally consider to be the United States, it just repeats the 14th Amendment. If All I, you need to do is change the regulations. Well, if I may, without belaboring the point too much, the problem that it seems to me that we have as a country right now is we have executive agencies of the United States government, ostensibly the executive branch, really the fourth branch, the administrative state branch, saying, we're just going to do this because we can, and no one's telling us not to. Yes, they've, they've never been instructed to do this by the Constitution, by statute, or by the executive branch in any way. So I, I don't know that uh, maybe if you're talking about winning a particular case on this or that ground, is that going to get the uh, executive agencies to stop? No. You, Probably you, not. You're you, going to need a president in power who actually recognizes the issue and makes them stop. And I would be delighted to have an additional congressional statute under Article 5 of the 14th. No, I think when, no, whatever no, happens, I mean, the ACLU is going to sue whatever the president does for about no, anything. It's going to sue. Okay. If and and then, then the it's going to go to the court. In any case, it, it will be. It's going to go to the Supreme Court in the end. We to, we to get That's the, what's going to happen. We ought to get the president to issue an executive order to the State Department yeah. to say no longer consider children of illegal immigrants to be automatically citizens of the That's United it. States. That we should do. That's, it. That, that's not going to settle it. They'll sue, and then, then we'll see but what they'll happens. sue if you pass a statute. Well, uh, <clears throat> Hawaiian judge, yeah, universal injunction. Well, please join me in uh, thanking our panelists for this very important talk. And uh, thank you to Arthur Millick and the Heritage Foundation for co-sponsoring this with us. And join us for drinks. Thank you. We do that at one fell stroke. That'll be. We argue. Yeah. Yeah. I'm a Japan native. Oh yeah, I remember we've talked before. Okay. Are you a U.S. citizen? Oh, really? Am I a citizen? A U.S. citizen. Oh, you're a U.S. citizen. Right. Okay. Nat